0: Welcome to Rising. We have another fantastic
1: show for you today. Good morning, Brianna. How are you? I'm doing well, Robbie. I'm looking forward to today's news, given the news day that yesterday was. It was a (laughs) long and interesting
0: day, and we will talk about that and a lot of other stuff. Well, actually, why don't you give the audience a preview?
1: (laughs) Well, Robbie, we have a massive show today. Journalist Michael Schellenberger will join us to discuss some reporting he's done on the lab leak origins of COVID that finds the first people sickened by the virus were Chinese scientists at Wuhan Institute of Virology. Then Gallup editor-in-chief Mohammed Yunus will be with us in studio to discuss public opinion polling on trans uh, transgenderism. Plus, Jordan Cheriton will f- fill us in on his investigation into toxic gas levels in Michigan. Hmm.
0: Well, we can't wait for that. But first, yesterday, Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to 37 charges relating to his alleged mishandling of classified documents. After being fingerprinted and formally arraigned, the former president gave a primetime speech to supporters at his New Jersey golf club.
2: This is called election interference, and yet another attempt to rig and steal a presidential election. More importantly, it's a political
0: persecution, like something straight out of a fascist or communist nation. Now, MSNBC chose not to air Trump's speech, and we'll get to that more of that in just a bit. But first, The Hill's Brett Samuels is here with us to give some details of Trump's legal woes. Welcome, Brett. What's the latest on this front?
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, You know, yesterday, obviously, we saw for the second time this year uh, former President Trump arriving at courthouse to be arraigned on criminal charges. Uh, In this case, there were federal charges, as you mentioned, uh, related to his retention of classified documents and how he allegedly obstructed investigators from getting those documents back. Uh, And what we saw yesterday, especially in this primetime speech from the former president was, I think, sort of a preview of what we can expect in sort of the weeks and months to come as this trial starts to play out, as a legal process starts to get moving down in Florida. Uh, We heard the former president attack Joe Biden, alleging that, you know, Joe Biden and the Justice Department were sort of in cahoots to to take out a political rival. Uh, We heard him offer up uh, sort of a litany of potential defenses, many of which were, were either misleading or inaccurate, talking about the Presidential Records Act, comparing his own handling of classified documents to how President Biden... In his case uh, that we've seen, where where classified documents were found at his Delaware home and in his old office, despite some key differences in those cases, Uh, and we saw former President Trump really attack Special Counsel Jack Smith, calling him a thug, a deranged lunatic, uh, sort of launching into these insults against Jack Smith. So I think it's a preview of what we can expect uh, post arraignment now. We'll see the former president and his team really try to discredit this investigation, paint it as political argue that these charges are, are meant to take out, uh, you know, the current frontrunner for the Republican nomination in 2024. Uh, so certainly yesterday was the start of what will be a long process, uh, and we'll see how it plays out as it sort of has its backdrop of the political calendar for
0: 2024. Mm. Brett Samuels, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. All right, well, like we mentioned earlier, MSNBC chose not to air Trump's post-arraignment speech. Here's what host Rachel Maddow had to say on the matter.
4: Now, tonight, after his arraignment on federal felony charges, he's speaking again, this time to an audience of his supporters that's gathered for a a campaign fundraiser tonight at his his golf club and summer home in New Jersey. We knew heading into this that he was planning to make these remarks. We are prepared for his pre-fundraiser remarks tonight to again be essentially a Trump campaign speech. Because of that, we do not intend to carry these remarks live. Um, As we have said before in these circumstances, there is a cost to us as a news organization to knowingly broadcast untrue things. We are here to bring you the news. It hurts our ability to do that if we live broadcast what we fully expect in advance to be a litany of lies and false accusations, no matter who says them. And I do not say this with any glee. I hope it is clear that this is not a glib decision. We take our responsibilities seriously. We revisit decisions like this all the time. We make the best call that we can in real time, every time. But tonight, our call is this. We will monitor that speech by the newly indicted former president. We will not carry his remarks live. If he says anything newsworthy, we promise we will turn that right around and bring it back to you. And
0: here's what Jake Tapper had to say over on CNN.
5: We, um, we do have now some of the sound, as I told you, we're not in the audience. We're not carrying his remarks live because frankly, he says a lot of things uh, that are not true and sometimes potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the risk of doing it this way is that the news story becomes liberal media censors president, which is exactly the story that we're doing right now. The fact of them not covering the speech becomes its own story, which maybe you think is a better story than whatever falsehoods you predicted that Donald Trump was going to say. But there is a cost to doing that as well. And I'm not sure at this point, given the um, silo nature of the news ecosystem. Where pretty much people who are watching MSNBC and CNN are not going to be Trump voters at all, what the actual damage is. Is the concern that their listeners are so suggestible or that Donald Trump is so persuasive that just hearing him say, I don't know, election denialism or I'm innocent or whatever it is you think he's going to say— is going to flip them into Trump voters?
0: Yeah, I I was watching CNN and MSNBC and Fox last night, and I happened to have flipped back over to CNN, MSNBC. It said, I can't remember which of the channels I was on, but it said Trump's remarks upcoming. And I I missed this disclosure, because I had been flipping back and forth. So I was waiting for the Trump speech. And I'm like, isn't it supposed to be on right now? And I I didn't realize they were just skipping it. So then I switched over to Fox, which, of course, was carrying Mm it. Um, I, I think there's a, I agree with absolutely everything you said. What do they do? They expect uh, to still be in the mindset that you need to protect your viewers from hearing the things Trump has to say because they're wrong and/or dangerous. Like, aren't we past that? You can't. You can't deplatform him. You can't. No, gonna he's going to be the out there president. saying things. Um, I think it doesn't inspire confidence in your own. Ability to rationally explain to people why the things he's saying are not correct. 100. Um, I, I have to. I would point out that social media companies that I think were way too um, heavy-handed on moderation, YouTube, including, has now decided they're going to go the other way. They said, you know, we realized. Something that (laughs) Robbie was saying all along, which is that prevent, you know, this effort to shield people from hearing things we think are wrong has negative consequences and can actually chill legitimate political discussion. They said they're not going to police election disinfo uh, anymore to the same extent that they were doing it previously. Um, Yeah, I I think this is just a really... Uh, look, they're not obligated to carry the speech. If, if From no. programming, they think their audience doesn't want to see it. Sure. They have more interesting content to do. Sure. they Then they don't have to carry it. But right. that's not what they were saying. They were saying, we're afraid to let you see this. That's we're what it comes off your as. Life. We're,
1: we're afraid, which basically feels like it's empowering to Trump. And look, the cable news Complex does not control what people see anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not 1972 Anybody interested in watching the speech is going to flip over to Fox Which is not going to help your ratings or they're going to go online and watch right. it. It's all over Twitter It's all over YouTube. It's all over the internet. So you, you just don't have the same Ability to influence the public knowledge the way that the corporate media used to in the past And so your role has to change if you believe the things that Donald Trump are saying is saying is wrong then Right. Or for your explanation why, but it does feel like, I'm sorry, a sort of a cope to just say, oh, it's not worth covering at all. So maybe this is the point at which we should talk about the substance of Trump's speech. What did you make of his remarks substantively?
0: It was exactly what you would expect. Um, You know, it was a defense. And again, we're not even in the the category, he's not talking about the election. They're applying the whole, we can't, what the things he's saying about the election are just abjectly false and we don't want to air them. They're applying that now to him. Um, presenting a defense in a criminal matter, which he's absolutely entitled to do. He is innocent until proven guilty. You might think the indictment is very damning, but he has every right to, uh, like, under the Constitution, to argue that he did not violate these laws, and he's going to be doing that in court. We're not going to be carrying, we're not going to be airing his speech because it's too harmful to right. allow him to mount his defense. That is actually bonkers. And it's quite.
1: Obviously, on its face, newsworthy. What Donald yeah. Trump believes to be the best defense yeah. to this criminal indictment, because Rachel Maddow said, "Well, we'll we'll review the speech, and if it's newsworthy, then we'll talk about it. We'll play it for you after the fact." What? Well, Obviously, knowing the context of what the speech is about, even if he is lying, that is in mm-hmm. fact newsworthy. So it's obviously not a newsworthiness standard. It's something else they're applying. And their inability to define that and be consistent about that is going to be an ongoing problem with those right. news organizations.
0: I thought the the most salient or interesting part of his remarks was that he, he basically said exactly what his Republican defenders are saying about mm-hmm. it, which is that this is unfair because they didn't do anything about Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. In and he threw Bill Clinton under the bus and George George W. <laughs> Bush as well and they're they're just out to get Trump. They haven't treated anyone else like that. Um, which that all may be even if that's true is not going to end up being a persuasive defense before right. a judge or jury in this actual criminal matter. Right. He said he did nothing wrong. Um, He called it the boxes hoax, Um, so that's going to be the the way it's being described. He's still
1: minting Um, new uh, linguistic terms for the American
0: public. Um, Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that is true. This This is the question that I hope gets resolved and engaged with by more legal commentators as we go forward. I think it is true, it is obviously true that there are meaningful differences between Donald Trump and the others in terms of how they responded to the request to give over the documents that they inappropriately kept. So, yes, Donald Trump obstructed justice. Donald Trump did more than the other people did. At the same time, the Espionage Act has been applied to throw people in jail who have done less than what Biden and Pence and Hillary and all of them did. So that there still is a question raised about selective prosecution and who does and who does not get prosecuted, even if it is also true that there are different levels of bad actions here among this crew of people. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I so agree with you. And I think we should continue to explore how the Espionage Act has been used um, to brutally punish um, people, not not just, you know, your celebrated political figures, but just like everyday Americans. Regular people, Americans. Yeah. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Tucker Carlson is out with episode three of his new Twitter show. This time he focuses on former President Donald Trump's classified documents indictment case. Let's watch some of that. Washington, that was just noise. None of it really rated. Identity politics
6: doesn't mean much to permanent Washington. What matters then and now is foreign policy, the invasions and occupations and proxy wars, the decisions that determine which global populations will thrive and which will die the policies that come with trillion dollar price tags, the ones that over time have made the counties around DC the richest suburbs in the world. In Washington, that's what actually matters. And it's obvious when you look carefully. When there's a debate about anything else, for example, the debt ceiling, both sides take their assigned positions and they start yelling. But when Congress decides to start a war, no matter how foolish or counterproductive or obviously disconnected from America's core interests that war may be, when that
0: happens, the leaders of both parties automatically jump
6: behind it like circus clowns.
0: And here is a little bit more from that same Twitter show. ...direction and then come home. How are things looking? Well, they should look great.
6: The federal government spent six and a half trillion dollars last year. That's more than any government has ever spent ever. So at the very least, you would expect pristine public roads. Oh, no, that's not what you see when you drive around this country. There are potholes and Jersey barriers everywhere. Looks like Tegucigalpa before the Chinese decided to rebuild the infrastructure of Honduras. We don't have China buying our roads, so they're falling apart. You'd think the people you would pass on your road trip would look happy and prosperous. Again, this is a very rich country, but a lot of them don't. Quite a few appear to be strung out on drugs. You see them shuffling by shuttered storefronts in small towns. And you wonder, as you see all of this, where did all the money go? It's certainly not here. Well, it's in Washington. It's in Fairfax and Loudoun counties and in leafy, perfectly manicured Northwest DC. And of course, a huge chunk of it went to Ukraine, to Zelensky and his friends. Not because you voted for that. You didn't vote to give it to them. You never would. But because Joe Biden and his many allies from Chuck Schumer to Mitch McConnell to Paul Ryan and every single news anchor on all of television, all of them believe that Ukraine, its borders, its future, its infrastructure are all more important than the town that you live in. They sincerely think that.
0: So very interesting clip, kind of a defense of Trump in some sense the beginning. Um, G- <laughs> Tucker says a lot of things I agree with, um, that Trump did articulate a clear bl- uh, break with, with the GOP's foreign policy goals, with the Bush era neoconservatism. and as Tucker explains in that clip, was um, hamstrung over and over again by people, by the permanent federal bureaucracy and then people within his own administration, people he picked who Tucker says flattered him because he's an easily flattered person and distracted him and got him to not follow through on his commitments to actually change foreign policy all the way. Now, from my perspective, I, I think that shouldn't be, in a, I, I think that's substantially true it should not be a defense and excuse of Donald Trump. Like, given that that's what happened over the Trump administration, my question, and my question would be to, P, to conservatives who, who, ca- who care, as I do, about those foreign policy changes, why would we repeat this experiment with Donald Trump when he proved that he, ca- he cannot, he's, he, right now people are upset that the deep state is like you know s- pulling his head under water. Didn't he prove he's not the person to to beat them to change Washington, right. didn't he demonstrate that his ego, his lack of, of of strategic thinking, his inability to pick the right people, and instead pick flatterers or people he saw on TV who he thought were good, like John Bolton? That's literally why he picked John Bolton, someone whose foreign policy views are completely at odds with everything Trump said he he stood for. He said, "Oh yeah, he's really good on he's really good on Fox. He saw him on Fox, mm-hmm. not when, when he was doing the." Do you know he did that uh, that aerobic product that had been on uh, on Shark Tank the the board where you like where you stand on it you don't know what I'm talking about it, <laughs> sorry. find me that find me that clip <laughs> I'm so producers sorry. I want to yes um, hand and you. that I don't anyway, know that one that's why he put John Bolton in his administration and John Bolton worked steadfastly to undermine Trump and is working even still to under you know on, back on cable news talking about how everything Trump did was bad and wrong and, and put Americans at risk etc so. That is what happened. That's the true story of how it went down. But I, I need to turn now to someone, someone new who has those views and then also has a strategy to implement them.
1: Well, so in case it's not clear from the clips that we showed, the gestalt of this thing is about uh, Trump's indictment and the story that Tucker Carlson tells. He is that Trump. They, they decided to indict Trump. The decision by. The deep state or what have you was mm-hmm. made the second that he, at a 2016 Republican primary debate, it invaded against the war in Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction and the unjustified nature of that conflict, um, and that that was an impermissible thing to say. And since then, people have flattered themselves into his employ and ingratiated themselves to him as a part of a long game to flip on him when he becomes weak and to control the, you know, and military apparatus such that the status quo is maintained. And I completely agree with your point, Rob. Well, for one, first of all, I'll say I think it's very smart rhetorically to mm-hmm. try to make this not about the fact that Donald Trump did an own goal and simply didn't return documents and is now facing criminal indictment and potentially jail because he simply didn't want to return documents to the National Archive and turn it into something a lot bigger and something that Republicans might be more willing to defend, which is this idea that he is a break from the military-industrial complex and is willing to stop doing so much uh, military spending and bring it home and do domestic spending. But there's two problems with that. One is that, to your point, Robbie, Donald Trump at no point seemed to put up any fight against the so-called operators who were—who were in his administration. He picked them. And not only did he pick them, he didn't seem to have any trouble with them once they were in that position. I didn't see him coming out and speaking to the public in a way that he is very able to do. We see him having a direct line on Twitter and social media and very willing to say his piece and to say what's on his heart. He didn't say, oh, my advisors are telling me to raise the military budget, but I really don't want to. Come with me, people. Rally at the White House. We all know he has the ability to say, come rally at the White House. At no point during his four years in office or since has he protested that. Every single year there are military budget increases that— Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, all of them sign off on, and that is a bipartisan effort. Second of all, I'm increasingly troubled by this pairing of domestic spending and military spending for two reasons. One is that as someone who— believes in MMT. I think that is a faulty economic understanding of our our ability to pay and the idea that we need to cut military spending to spend domestically. I think we do need to cut military spending for reasons other than budget reasons. But secondly, even if you don't—are an MMT economist. The reality is that when it comes to actually approving domestic spending, Republicans repeatedly say no. We just had this debt ceiling crisis during which zero Republicans were willing to cut the military budget or offer that as right. a plan forward. And instead, they were all salivating, very happy at the idea of cutting basic social net social safety programs for poor and working class people. So, to the extent that Tucker Carlson in this clip is talking about, passing people who are drug addicted and sad and poor on the side of the road, bad infrastructure potholes in the street, the I-95 crumbling uh, on the way to Pennsylvania, there is no effort to fund healthcare, to expand uh, Medicare and Medicaid, to support rehabilitation programs to, there was even some fight over the bifurcated infrastructure I mean, bill, the part that was just infrastructure.
0: Billions of dollars going to these programs as they exist And
1: and so what is the argument then? They don't need to be funded more? If you believe and if Tucker believes that those programs do not need to be funded more, then he is lying Uh, I don't know what Tucker believes. Then then he is lying. If the the rationale to well we're already spending and it's not working, if that's what you believe, that spending doesn't help, then why is he arguing that we need to cut military spending so that we can do domestic spending? I think that's a lie. So while I agree with him about the problem with military spending, so many of these Republicans are using that messaging because they know America Americans want more domestic spending. They want to lower their health care costs. They're tired of paying more for healthcare than everyone else in the world and getting low or, or every other similarly industrialized country and getting worse health outcomes. But the Republicans who are using that messaging to appeal to a populist audience that is sincere in their belief, has, ne- has there's absolutely no evidence in Trump's record or beyond that that is what they would do if suddenly we did cut military spending, or if we didn't cut military spending.
0: Right. I think we should cut military spending because I don't like the military policies we have, so I want to empower less of these decisions. Also I want to cut government spending across the board so we can cut military spending. I don't I, – this is probably a longer conversation that we can have before we wrap here, but I, I think probably there are structural issues and policy issues going into healthcare and social – it's not really – I, I imagine we could spend less money and still have – Crappy care and spend more money, and also have crappy care. And there's probably more we have to change about the fundamentals of this. Like, we do have to change gets, the
1: fundamentals. The problem right. is that people are paying so much to the middlemen, the health insurance sure. companies, that they could be paying. They could take. You could take the money. This is how other countries do it. You can take the money that you're currently paying to your health care premium, half it. Pay that money to the government in terms of the national healthcare program, the Medicare for all program, to pay, fund an expansion of Medicare. Both in terms of everybody being able to now take advantage of Medicare, and also the benefits included in Medicare would be bigger, broader, hearing, dental care, uh, eye care. No more of this. You got health insurance, but somehow dental insurance is different because your teeth aren't in your body. You're having to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket for ear, and impl- hearing implants, the way so many older Americans know they have to do. And that would save the average American money, because again, you're you're just paying the money directly to the service and not to the healthcare provider. And by the way, the way we have it set up now, the second you miss a payment, you don't get coverage. Plus, you're paying all of those premiums, and when you get sick, you still have to pay more because you have to meet your deductible. Right. The and indirect, the and all indirect of
0: that. part of our system is bad and needs reform. I got a I got a doctor's bill the other day for a test they did, and I, I just paid my copay, but the test it was a because co- I went to the doctor's office, they gave me a COVID test, and that cost. At the doctor's office, it costs like a hundred or more dollars. That's what they they didn't charge me that. They charged the insurance company yep. that. Um, a COVID test at CVS, which is there's one beneath my building, costs like 15 or 20 bucks. Yep. So why does it cost them, you know, 10 times that to do at the doctor's office? But again, that's being billed to the insurance company. So that, like, th- that is the kind of structural issue yes. we need to address. Yes, 100%. Yeah. We'll Yeah, have more rising right after this. Outgoing director for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Rochelle Walensky, faced one final grilling in Congress yesterday. Lawmakers and the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic pressed her about the COVID-19 policies implemented in response to the pandemic by the CDC. And though the hearing was mostly cordial, Republican members expressed concern over the influence the American Federation of Teachers had over the CDC's guidance regarding schools and reopenings and closings. Let's watch a little bit of that.
7: Did the American Federation of Teachers provide suggested edits to the CDC's February 2021 school opening guidance including a trigger to automatically close schools that if implemented would have kept more schools closed and kids out of the classroom?
8: Uh, The AFT was interested in having closure triggers, that is my understanding, yes.
7: So your answer is yes.
8: Um, Yes, they were not accepted, of course.
1: GOP panel members also challenged Walensky on the efficacy of the COVID vaccine. Here's some of that exchange.
2: The vaccine did not stop spread or infection. I'm not saying it was completely bad, but it did not stop the spread or infection. I think
8: actually, if I could actually um, just correct that point, and that is initially it did. For the Wuhan strain and for the alpha strain, all of the early data and the literature published in the New England Journal demonstrated that for those who worked, if you didn't get infected, that you were not transmitting it to other people. And it had very high efficacy early on, up to 96%. Uh,
0: So it did change over time.
5: All
0: right, so what do you make of that? So the, the first part was interesting. Uh, she kind of throws the teachers' unions under the bus a little bit there. Um, so, I, I mean, points for honesty. She said, yeah, they pushed for that policy, and we didn't think it was a good idea, and we said no, um, a policy to have automatic reasons for schools to close. Um, there had been previous reporting in the New York Post and other places about um, you know, the uh, really direct attempts by, uh, by Randy Weingarten, teachers' union leaders, other people um, in that organization trying to—having um, a lot of contact with Rochelle Walensky to get her to say, because in the pandemic, it was what the CDC says goes, um, to get her to sign off on kind of the m- even more restrictive policies that the teachers' unions um, wanted. I remember seeing, um, like, uh, like the, the, uh, some, some teachers' union leader texted her and said, hey, we'd love to have a conversation about this. And she responds, who is this? Like, she didn't have the number <laughs> in her phone. Like, oh, I'm sorry, this is the teachers' unions. This is what we want. Um, so interesting. And then, of course, they have the exchange on, you know, vaccines. That that is, uh, her clarifying that yes, at first it looked like um, they were very, in fact, protective of spread as well as severe disease and death, um, which was the case. But there, you know, there was a, there was a closing off of conversations that was occurring around that point on you know acting as if that was always going to be the case. The, the presumption that I, the health officials led people to believe was that yeah, that was. Going to be an enduring fact of the vaccine. Well, that, I mean, that
1: was a belief. Yeah. What, what's but it was
0: this... a, what I'm saying is it was a belief, not a proven scientific fact.
1: Right. But the the posture of it is we have a vaccine that is doing that. We have no reason to believe it will stop doing that. So of course we're gonna we're gonna mm-hmm. plan along those lines. And when evidence to the contrary comes in, we have to then pivot. And that the critique is they didn't pivot fast enough. That's a legitimate critique. But I don't know that. The presumption should have been the thing that's working is going to stop working, and therefore we should keep designing policy under the presumption that mm-hmm. the, you know that it's going to radically change all of a sudden with a new strain. Uh, I, we talk a lot on this show about the things that the CDC got wrong. It is interesting sometimes for me to reflect on how there was a time when the vaccines were working as expected, and there was a lot of people who were wrong about and who were protesting the vaccines at that time and the efficacy of the vaccines at that time, that does get memory hold as well, that there was a push and pull, a give and take about why there became so much distrust, because there were a lot of people who were denying the, the, the um, benefits of vaccination, even when the benefits were more strong and more clear than they are now. Now, of course, the mm-hmm. benefits are that they uh, prevent hospitalization and death overwhelmingly. But before, they did have these broader effects on spread, etc. So, you know, I just, I, it's it was worth making that point. With respect to the teachers union stuff, you know, if you can characterize it as throwing them under the bus, it doesn't really matter. But it does also seem to me that the teachers unions have an interest in it's protecting the well-being of teachers. As we discussed, there was a recent study that came out a week or two ago uh, that showed that children were a significant vector of the virus, including during lockdowns, were really undermining much of the lockdown policy, teachers obviously being vulnerable. Kids aren't dying and stuff from COVID, but adults definitely were. And so, in the time before the vaccines, I think there was a very good reason for a teacher's union to want to protect the health and safety of teachers by lobbying the government to have policies that benefited them. The problem is, you know, that the government has to look at the interests of a broader group than just the, te- the teachers, and it sounds like they did the right thing in this case and said, well, I respect your interests. They're also the interests of students, learning loss, other things, and, and they made the right call. So it, this, this does seem to be another one of those cases where There's just more nuance involved. Mm -hmm. Everybody who worked for the government wasn't a bad actor. There's a combination of changing scientific reality, lagging response to that changing scientific reality. Some people who were bad faith actors, some people who were good faith actors, but are advocating on behalf of a narrow constituency. And there's a lot to be learned from this situation, but it's just not the black and white story that people on both sides of this thing are often telling.
0: Right. My criticism would be, but that policy there were uh, policy was made and it became and in many places it was mandatory based on what the CDC was saying mm-hmm. so if the CDC h- had been more responsible and, and was m- more carefully said here's what we think mm-hmm. but don't this is our you know, our confidence level is not ironclad. This is just what we think. And also, they were very slow to recognize that uh, if you'd been infected with COVID, that was going to be about as protective, you know, at various stages uh, of as getting uh, a, a shot of the of the vaccine. Were they slow? And
1: so if if they're slow to realize that, that's less of an issue than if they, they did realize it, it but slow to admit it. That's well, I mean, the problem.
0: other I mean, right. The problem is, but there were t- there were other people, you know, who were. Described as like heretics or yeah. alternate, who were saying these things. All who said, in the long run, they're not going to be uh, the, the vaccines are not going to uh, prevent the spread, and that natural immunity is going to be very protective. There were people who thought that and ended up being right. They were just kind of outside the mainstream scientific consensus sure. for a while, and now they're part of the now. Those claims count. Sure. It's just like well, I, I think that's all fair, but that's my that's again, what I wonder about.
1: Sometimes we talk about this as though there weren't vaccines for the first. Year of COVID, mm-hmm. so we talk about COVID like immediately we're off to the races and all this vaccine. We were doing policy because for a year there were no vaccines. I think I got vaccinated like April of 2021. Me too. So o- over a year of COVID before there were vaccines and. People who were healthy were being hospitalized and dying as a consequence. So, I do think it's also just important to note the time stamp on some of these things. If I say, well, people were saying that this was a problem and therefore that, you know, we shouldn't shut down schools because there was herd immunity and da 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 da. Oh, okay, yes, sir, well, are we, we talking about s- but September 2021? We
0: were still having a school reopening conversation.
1: Yeah, if, it's, many, many if months we're talking September that, 2001, that's a legitimate, a yeah. very legitimate concern. We're talking September 2000s. Yeah. That was a, a tougher.
0: 2020 versus 2020. A to, sorry,
1: yeah. 2020, <laughs> September 2020. I'm an old head.
0: Yeah. yeah so in September t- 2000, they were still recovering from Y2K. <laughs> so we
1: couldn't
0: have schools We, we had different concerns, yeah. Uh, there's another clip we wanted to play here. Let's get to that. So later in the hearing, Walensky was asked about social media's role in censoring uh, other information about COVID-19 policies. Let's play it.
2: Did the CDC work with Meta, or I like to call it Facebook still, to censor or otherwise alter any post?
8: Here's what I can tell you. The most important thing that has gotten out, us out of this pandemic, I think, is our vaccine and how well they work and how I, safe I they are. I understand that. And it was really important that the American but people understand how well they worked and how I, I, safe I they are. I understand it. Um, did, but did, did, but did, in terms of the communications, that is, again, something that I'm not going to speak to because it is currently under so you're courtroom. not going to answer the question. Uh, it is currently under court litigation.
0: Yeah, so she refused to comment multiple times on communications, which is a shame because I'm, that's why I'm really interested in this. Uh, she wouldn't comment on how, how the CDC messaged to social media companies um, because, uh, and, and that might sound like it's just an excuse, but yes, there is litigation ongoing. Uh, the, uh, the lawsuit brought by, um, what, the state of Missouri and mm-hmm. Arkansas, I believe. Um, related to social media companies um, banning accounts like Jay Bhattacharya and, uh, and others. Um, so she's a part of that, so she can't comment on it, which is a shame, because I would like to hear more from her on what she thinks about those policies. I did a really big magazine cover story for Reason, where I also work, um, on the constant messaging between the CDC and Facebook on all sorts of subjects uh, that, is, at, at some point, Facebook was basically outsourcing its moderation to CDC. They were, whatever the CDC said, that was then gonna be the policy and that impacted for a long time. You couldn't um, talk about lab leak on, on Facebook. Like, they would delete those posts. Um, there was some. I think they were way too uh, too heavy-handed when it came to claims about vaccines uh, for kids and how necessary they might be. Um, and look, I'm sure there are plenty of crazy c- uh, claims too that maybe sure. should have been taken down, and, and Facebook would have taken down maybe even without warning. CDC's yeah. input. But um, they really defaulted to what that agency was saying, and um, I don't think uh, I don't think our federal agencies in general have properly reckoned with whether it's proper for them to have this level of cooperation, coordination, and, and, and they're doing this at the same time that that's behind the scenes, then center stage, you know, Joe Biden and others are saying social media companies are killing people mm-hmm. because they're not doing more to censor and moderate. Mm-hmm. And political figures on Capitol Hill are, are looking at their liability levels and their regulations and saying, how can we, how can we uh, make these, these, uh, these companies suffer? How can we impact their bottom line? Altogether, together, that looks to me like a very worry, uh, worrying kind of recipe for... Yeah, and Mark Zuckerberg disaster. recently,
1: we talked about Talking earlier about that, this yeah. week, you know, said he has regrets about what happened there, and it's no wonder, given the amount of pressure that all of these social media companies were under... And continue to be under
0: and Dorsey said on breaking points that he that it was more vast than he even was aware of Jack Dorsey former CEO of Twitter the Twitter files has taught him that there was way more interaction between government and his own company yeah, than and, he, than and, he and he that is
1: ongoing as well and that he has concerns yes. about not just the Twitter's ongoing choice to perhaps not be as transparent as he would like here in the United States, but also bending the knee to certain authoritarian governments in a way that even he, Jack Dorsey, when he was CEO, declined to do. More Rising
0: right after this. Huge news to report, the first people infected by COVID, the patients zero, were in fact Chinese scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Moreover, these three scientists were engaged in gain-of-function research on SARS-like coronaviruses when they fell ill. This is according to new reporting from Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, and Alex Gutentag. Michael Schellenberger joins us now to explain more. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael.
5: Good to be with you guys.
0: So lay it out for us. Uh, what is the evidence here that the initial infection was in fact among the pe- very people you would expect to be most likely to be first infected if it, it the COVID was a result of a lab leak
5: incident? Sure, so we have it from uh, multiple people in the US government, very careful not to identify these people very nervous and afraid this information is classified, which I don't understand why. And we don't know for how long, but we think for a very, for a while now, uh, maybe since the beginning. But yes, these three researchers uh, include Ben Hu uh, and two others who were directly involved working with the uh, coronaviruses that are very similar to SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID and uh, they were working in that part of the lab for Xi Jing Ling, who's the scientist that headed up the of function research. So when we told experts that had that had been people arguing that there was a, a serious chance that it came from a lab, when we told them it was Ben Hu, who was one of three patient zero, as we call the first people to get the disease, they were nobody was surprised and they were just kind of, they were actually more angry that it had taken so long for this information to get out, which I think is a big part of the story too. Which is why, you know, why was this classified? Why had? Why did it take so long to know this? Why did we have to be the ones that found this out? Um, why is the government keeping so many secrets from us? So and, I think there's a bunch of big questions here, but I do feel like we are now at a place of at least for me, 100% came from the lab, and we know who got infected first.
0: And, and tell uh, the audience uh, more about who is Ben and his connection to, uh, to research done on bats
5: and coronaviruses, et cetera? Well, so Ben Hu um, is sort of the number two under Xi Jingling, who's the person uh, that heads up the gain-of-function research for the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Ben Hu's name is, he's the lead author on some of the most important uh, academic publications and studies. Uh, Ping Yu is another author of these studies. So it's it's just sort of exactly what you would predict the people that were messing around with this virus that were looking to insert the furin cleavage site into a a spike protein to that would have the result of increasing infectiousness. They got sick first. I mean, it's just um, there's actually something that's totally not shocking about it. The most shocking thing about it is why did it have to come out this way? Why did it take three years, three and a half years? who knew? When did they know? Why was everything so scared to tell us? Um, it's a bad. This, is a, this was a big cover-up that was going on, and it, we know it involved the Chinese government. Um, why was the United States government not revealing this? Who knew about this? And why were they spreading disinformation suggesting that anybody who even raised this issue was engaged in a conspiracy theory? In fact, uh, there was a conspiracy, which was to keep this information secret. And um, it should make us angry because, had we had this information earlier, obviously we would have saved a lot of time talking about raccoon dogs and penguins. But there also might have been something we could have done at the beginning of the pandemic had we known where it kind of came from.
1: Michael, this is very explosive indeed. You're saying that, but for a whistleblower effectively, telling you that the government knew that the first people who got COVID were working at the Wuhan Virology Lab. We would still be making these guesses about origin. But let me ask you this this question for any skeptics. You know, how does one determine who was the first to contract COVID-19? Because isn't part of the theory of the zoonotic origin? that. The zoonotic origin also could have taken place at the, at the wet markets that were very close to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, or the uh, bat cave collection that was happening for the purposes of the uh, Wuhan lab of virology. And that the, there's a bit of a chicken under the egg situation. Did someone from the lab visit the wet market? They, did they contract it when um, getting samples from the bats in the caves nearby? How does one retur- really determine, from a scientific perspective, who patient zero really is?
5: Well, that nobody would say every uh, the people we spoke with were very nervous about this. It took a lot of work, a lot of trust building. It took, frankly, a lot of other stories that we had done with whistleblowers recently. Uh, um, Also the work with the Twitter files for people to trust us with this information. Uh, But when we pressed one source um, about how certain they were, they said 100%. And so. I think reading between the lines, and again, nobody told me, I think that they had very good information, uh, and I don't know if it was human intelligence or signal intelligence or what it was, but apparently it's very good information, and that's, I mean, part of what the folks were very nervous about is not revealing how they had that information. And
0: and could this be the information that has led, because obviously with the energy department and the FBI have said they lean in favor of the lab leak theory, Is this because of this, you know, this information—they have seen information that has caused them to make these determinations. This information is not public yet. Uh, Like you, I I think I I absolutely believe it should be public so the American people can, you know, decide whether the government is making the right um, determination based on the information it has. But is is uh, this—do you know whether this is what has caused those government agencies to make that determination?
5: I— I don't, I don't know exactly uh, the answer to your question, but we do know that the uh, Directorate of National Intelligence is supposed to come out with a new summary of the intelligence on June 18th. And so there was a major piece in the Times of London that cited many unnamed State Department sources. Um, we have not revealed even which branch of the federal government we have our information from, but, it, but we do know that other reporters are working on the story. So, I get the sense that there are people in the government that have been pushing very hard to get this information out and are frustrated that it's taken so long and that are maybe a little worried that the DNI report won't be as complete as it should be. Um, I would also say that the FBI earlier this year, the director of the FBI, Christopher Ray said something like, We have known it came from the lab for some time, I believe, or for a long time, which I we know at least, I mean, January 15th, the State Department nearly came out and said that that this is a bit, our story has the names of the patients and is very definitive. The State Department statement on January 15th, 2021 said that people got sick uh, uh, in the lab. And, and we know that that document, I can assure, I know for a fact that that was being pushed uh, well before January 15, 2021, so we're talking about 2020 here. So yeah, I mean, I just think it's, I mean, I'm flabbergasted that they sat on this for so long. I don't know why, don't, <laughs> ostensibly that Fauci and others said that they didn't want to, they wanted to go away from this with some of the, the offending the Chinese. Um, but. Yeah, I, I just don't know, but I do think things are coming to a head, and we're going to see a fair amount more in the next few days.
1: Michael, has there been or will there be any effort to reach out and talk to the patients to try to corroborate at very least the timing of their having contracted COVID?
5: Yeah, we did. I, we emailed and made phone calls to all of the, the three uh, uh, patients, zero as they're called, We also put in phone calls and emails to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to National Institutes of Health, um, to Peter Daszak with the EcoHealth Alliance. We don't know what they knew, but nobody got back to us. Uh, Nobody responded, and they didn't respond to the Times of Lent either. Mm.
0: Well, this is a very, very, Terrific reporting. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. It, it sounds, I hope, that you know, the dam is breaking and that we'll soon all be able to access uh, whatever the government knows on this subject. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: The CIA warned Ukraine against attacking the Nord Stream pipelines last summer after it learned about a Ukrainian ploy to sabotage it? Well, that's according to a new report in The Wall Street Journal. The journal's article maintains that three months before the explosions, the U.S. agency sent a message to Ukraine after it had been tipped off by the Netherlands' military intelligence service.
0: The CIA seems to have taken the tip seriously, but per The Wall Street Journal's reporting, they were not convinced that Ukraine could follow through with such a plot. MSNBC's Chris Hayes tweeted, So, looks more and more like Cy Hirsch got this completely wrong, or alternately a bunch of different outlets on two different continents have all gotten it totally wrong, and Hirsch's single source was correct. I don't really understand the gloating here, because even if Cy Hirsch did get it wrong, so did... All of the mainstream mouthpieces for months and months and months, who first insisted Russia did it, and then insisted, well, maybe it was some some random, you know, Bout. non-state <laughs> affiliated entity. Yeah. It would never be the U.S. or the Ukrainian government. And now we now we've pretty much narrowed it down to Cy Hirsch's theory, which is that uh, he said it, it it was U.S. backed and led. The, the training occurred in a U.S facility to train the divers. Um, Now, the reporting from The Wall Street Journal and other places is that this was greenlit by the Ukrainian—second highest level from Zelensky, Ukrainian government, uh, and the U.S. was aware of it and, according to these statements from the CIA, actually tried to deter the Ukrainians from going through with it. Now, um, I think you should take I mean, I urged viewers, we interviewed Cy Hirsch here, and I said, take what he says with a grain of salt, because he is not, you know, I, I can't review the documents he says he's reviewed, so I don't know. Um, I think you should also take what the CIA says with
1: a grain of salt. Um, would, the, would the CIA ever lie to us, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. What's so funny about this is that back in, I believe, March, after Cy Hirsch's reporting came out, he followed up writing that he had intelligence, that even though there was basically immediate blackout on his story—remember, they didn't even cover it for weeks, um, maybe even uh, up to a month but that he had heard from from his intelligence channels that certain elements in the CIA were asked to prepare a cover story in collaboration with German intelligence that would provide the American and German press with an alternative version for the destruction of the Nord Stream 2. In the words of the intelligence community, the agency was, quote, to pulse the system in an effort to discount the claim that Biden had ordered the pipeline's destruction. Okay, so we we had Cy Hirsch's reporting. There was a delay in mainstream media coverage. And then we got a volley of alternative events Mm -hmm. that seemed to align with what Cy Hirsch predicted would happen, that there was an effort to provide some alternative narrative that would detract from what Cy Hirsch was saying. Now we uh, we, have—what we also know is that there is a history of these mainstream papers, basically printing CIA accounts. They'll print what the CIA tells them, they'll print a police report without doing any investigative uh, searches on their own. Now, when you look at the quality of this particular story, the posture of it is, okay, America heard that it was coming, and it's not just that America was an innocent third-party bystander. The story that is being put out there is that America really tried to stop it. We're not just innocent. We're kind of the good guys in this story, and we just didn't manage to be able to do so. So think about it this way. We're being told that a country, Ukraine, that is raging a war with Russia, largely being financially backed by the United States of America, was told by its financial backer not to commit the biggest act of industrial sabotage in the history of mankind, but chose to do it anyway. And that the United States, which is basically funding this this war substantially, didn't have any ability to provide incentives to Ukraine for them not to do it, and chose not to make their make any consequences for Ukraine for having uh, undermined. The, you know uh the the mm-hmm. the US's instructions
0: Absolutely, and, and this is this is supposed to be the theory of us giving foreign aid, giving money, is that then we can affect the policies. Never works. They always do what they want. We have to follow through and shut off the spigot of money when countries do things we don't want them to do. So is anyone uh, asking the no question? Point. So okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with okay, you, CIA.
1: Yeah. You're now you're by your own version of events. You told Ukraine not to blow up your ally. Ukraine is not in NATO. Germany is in NATO. Right. You told Ukraine not to blow up your allies' $11 billion oil pipeline? You did it anyway. And we just said, oh, oh shucks, and continue to right. fund the war effort for the next almost a yeah, year Yeah, that now.
0: itself is, uh, is pretty incendiary. Um, and there should be questions about, as we've continued to ask why is the U.S. government not more interested in getting to the bottom of Nord Stream? Maybe there should be some self-reflection. Maybe there should be hearings and questions about why their funding is continuing despite the country not, the country doing explicitly according to our government. This is what they claim, explicitly violating. Um, orders our CIA gave them
1: and let's let's not forget so. um, the posture of this part of why um, Many people found Cy Hersh's reporting to be so compelling is that there was a great deal of corroborating evidence there was the positioning of the event the 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 the, the explosives being placed during this uh, Baltic Naval, naval training demonstration, demonstration yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. that happened in June. The new the new version of events also has America becoming aware of the attempt to place a bomb in June. The new series of events doesn't really explain the gap between June and September the way that Cy Hirsch's does. Just Hirsch says it was planted under the cover of these naval exercises, and it was a remote detonation event that happened later in the year. The question of Who trained these people to do what is a very technical dive is still up in the air. Cy Hirsch said part of why he would point to the United States is because there are very few countries and agencies that have the ability to train people who could effectuate this. The new version of events from the CIA doesn't seem to be reckoning with this. It says, well, America didn't think that Ukraine could pull it off. Which which is a tacit suggestion that there is a real technical difficulty in doing this, but no explanation of how they did manage to pull it off, absent the training facilities and expertise that Cy Hirsch says largely is held by the United States and and maybe a a couple of other governments that are not Ukraine. And there is very uh, little—despite people framing this the way that Chris uh, Chris Hayes did, as. Contradicting Cy Hirsch's term uh, event none of the external corroborating evidence. That's being Leveraged here actually goes against what well. Cy uh, no, is I mean saying. the accounts
0: are in contradiction We don't know who is right. I mean Cy Hirsch said they were trained to do this on No, no I'm soil talking about the external
1: the, what we do know in terms of the external evidence. Right. what we event. do know
0: is not in conflict Yeah,
1: right, so it's not as Whether the US
0: trained them to do it or whether we said no and didn't right so is a massive difference me,
1: so if I tell you a story that um, I I was on a scooter and I fell off uh, at 12 noon yesterday. And there's, and, and, uh, there's some dis- discussion about who's at fault. And I have one version of events, and you have another version of events, and my version of events is that I hit a pothole and fell off. And your version of events is that a car hit me and I fell off. Well, if we go to the site and there's no pothole, that, that undermines my version of events, right? Mm-hmm. Or if we have street cam footage and there's no car, that undermines your versions of events. What I'm saying is that there's nothing... People are telling a different narrative about the lead-up sure. and what happened, but there's no, there's nothing that's actually disproven, as far as I can tell, in Cy Hirsch's count. It's just a different gloss that's being put on what led to the externally the, the corroborating events that we can externally look at. Sure. Uh, and so I I just don't I'm understand. Saying it's not
0: verified either way.
1: No, exactly. But that's not how it's being framed. People like Chris Hayes right. are saying this blows Cy Hirsch's reporting out of the water, right. when I st- still think, and I think you're right, to take both and accounts it, it, with it a bl- grain of salt. It blows all the reporting, it blows all,
0: tons right. of mainstream framing of what happened out of the water.
1: Uh,
8: it's just it's offering another
1: alternative account. Right. That I think that's what it does. Yeah, and I, I'm while I agree annoying... with you, wait a minute, Sorry. while I agree with you that Cy Hirsch's account we should take with a grain of salt, if you, there's nothing dispositive that would cause you to have to reject his account based on what else has been said Unless you just take the CIA's sure. version of events as truth, on its face, sure. that's it.
0: I, I'm most—it's just a different thing that's annoying us. I'm most annoyed by Chris Hayes and people like him pretending that this is what they said all along, sure. and this was absolutely not what sure. they were saying. Yeah, that's important too. Yeah, more rising right after this. In a new Gallup poll, 69% of Americans say transgender athletes should only be able to play on the teams that match their birth gender. This is reportedly a seven-point shift toward that position since 2021, which was at 62% then. This shift was also seen among Democrats, with 41% holding that viewpoint in 2021, 48% holding it now.
1: Also in the poll, 55 percent of Americans say that changing one's gender is morally wrong, while 43 percent consider it morally acceptable. When Gallup asked this question in 2021, 51 percent saw changing one's gender as morally wrong and 46 percent said it was morally acceptable. Editor-in-chief of Gallup, Muhammad Yunus, joins us now to discuss these findings. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here.
0: Uh, Yeah, so tell us more about what you think were the big findings of of this poll. Obviously, this is an issue we talk a lot on the show about, seems to really animate um, the conservative movement um, right now. Honestly, conservative media very much covering gender issues, gender controversies, uh, athletes, um, you know, what are the takeaways?
2: The takeaways with this poll are certainly the two you mentioned, but also to keep in mind that this is a poll that um, also included questions about uh, political and social identity. And we saw a relative high in Americans describing themselves as socially conservative. Mm. Um, It's also notable that on both measures, uh, both the moral acceptability and um, uh, participation in sports, Americans are actually less accepting, if you will, than they were the last time we asked the question. So, 55 percent of Americans currently say it's morally wrong to change one's gender, but only 39 percent of Americans say they personally know somebody who's told them, a coworker, a friend, a, a colleague. Um, a family member that's told them that they're transgender. So there's still the vast majority, if you will, of Americans still haven't made that personal connection. Um, I think the other thing that's really important here is we see a difference in people's perceptions in terms of the acceptance morally, whether or not they know somebody who is transgender, having a more accepting mm-hmm. impact. And that's obviously, we know that from just mm-hmm. decades of social research. And then all so of the gay, gay, gay marriage, marriage statistics. Yeah, or, yeah. And, and, and it's true with um, attitudes about immigrants. It's true here in the United States and really globally. It's a very common uh, a theory in so- sociological research that if you know somebody from another group, you're more likely to have more positive views or a deeper understanding Mm -hmm. of that group than people who say they haven't. So we still have a lot of Americans that say they haven't met somebody. But an important distinction is, despite knowing someone who's transgender or not personally, people are less favorable to this participation in sports aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is interesting that even Democrats, who are 7 in 10 states, morally acceptable, um, oh, excuse me, 8 in 10 say it's morally acceptable, 7 in 10 say it's OK to um, uh, participate in the, uh, the sports, they're actually far less likely to do so um, when it comes to sports. Before
1: we get to sports, I just want to ask you about the framing of the first question, the morally acceptable. Was there any question about whether or not Americans should be permitted to do it regardless of what American, other Americans think of it? Because the real issue here politically, right, is that there are laws being passed. Yeah to prevent people from doing what they want to do with their own bodies in their own consultation with their medical providers, you know, I, I wonder if there is any questioning that gets at that more libertarian conceit of whether or not people should be allowed to. I can sit here and say I might not think it's morally acceptable for families to make their kids be vegan or to beat their kids or any number of things. To circumcise their kids. But if you ask me, do I think that people should be allowed to do those, it would be a very different answer, right?
2: Yeah. And we didn't ask that question in this poll. And that is a really important distinction, um, that the moral acceptability of a group doesn't necessarily um, directly mean that people are promoting discrimination against that group. You know, another really strong example of that is the favorability of China. So mm. right now in America, China is viewed as the number one enemy of the United States. And you could say, wow, well, that is really concerning, because that means there's a lot of anti-Asian hate out there. Um, And that's true, but they also have a very favorable view of countries like Japan and South Korea. So, it really depends on um, the question you're specifically asking. We didn't ask about those legal rights. But when it comes to morality versus fairness and participation in sports, there is definitely um, a divide, even amongst people who are left of center on whether or not that should be taking place?
0: I have seen, I think, more criticism from conservatives of uh, it's Pride Month of kind of just the LGBT category um, this year than I can recall in previous years. I think there had been a sense that the right, except for very ardent religious conservatives, had largely given up on relitigating gay marriage, um, things of that nature, you know, except when it, it's still going to fight the cake-baking case, yeah, where it really clashes with um, freedom of religion and freedom of expression, maybe. But uh, the, those issues were settled and won, and, you know, most Americans, even a lot of Americans on the right, agreed with that. Um, based on, the, you know, reading your poll results, I, my perception would be that the trans category and, and the sort of the—, the Disinterested, including them in sports that even many Democrats have, is is that like dragging down the the entire LGBT category, you know, back toward um, levels of non-acceptance that were you know have last witnessed back in the in the aughts.
2: We don't see that in the numbers. So um, okay. whether or not people are accepting of um, gay marriage, for example, is something we've been asking about for decades. Right now, um, seven in ten Americans support. Um, view of being homosexual as morally acceptable, and even larger percentages support gay marriage. And we've seen huge shifts over just the past 30 years on those. So, you know, as—again, going back to who you know and how it impacts your views, as more Americans inform themselves on— What does it mean to be transgender? What does it mean to receive gender-affirming care? We know from other research we've done with transgender respondents that a relative minority, about 13 percent of those who identify as transgender in the United States, have received some kind of gender-affirming care. So, is the conversation about transgender identity being hijacked, if you will, by one aspect or experience? of being transgender in America, and how that's impacting the political conversation is notable. Again, of course, this is happening in a time when major um, uh, uh, abortion—established law has been overturned with Dobbs. And in this same survey, we also asked about attitudes about abortion. So the left, you know, had this moment where voters really highlighted that abortion was suddenly a more important issue after Roe v. Wade was overturned, now the right basically has this issue, this idea that most Americans don't really understand or try to get their minds around, what it means to be transgender and how to participate in things like sports. Where um, I think we're going to see both of those issues brought to the fore in this coming election. Yeah,
1: I do think the point about kind of the scale of this and whether or not it's being hijacked or uh, exaggerated in some ways for political reasons is, is an important one. There was that famous moment where Matt Walsh was asked in an interview, I think by Joe Rogan how many transgender youth he thought existed in the country, and he predicted like hundreds of thousands or something like that, maybe even millions, and the real answer was something like 4,000. Which brings me to the next question about the, 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 getting into the, the sports issue. I wonder, again, when you're designing these questions, if there is a disaggregation between what people feel about, how people feel about trans people participating in the sport of their uh, uh, gender identity, if they are in the first and second grade, playing peewee softball or whatever, versus a competitive athletes where there's money and prestige and scholarships and the like on the line,
2: uh, and also
1: more uh, biological dimorphism when you're older and after puberty. Yes,
2: and I think those are just the beginning of all of the nuanced, um, really challenges that we face as researchers in getting our minds around what is a respondent think of when we ask about these questions. Um, We are doing a lot of research in many different uh, sort of directions, in first trying to understand what is the true incidence rate or, if you will, the presence of transgender Americans in America. Um, Our latest assessment is that it's only about 0.6 percent of -hmm. the population in America today Overall, 7 percent of Americans identify as LGBT. But those rates, especially those who identify as bisexual, are far higher in younger generations of Americans. And that's another really important factor that will fundamentally change how Americans feel about this issue, is, as younger Americans grow older in an environment where America is being more informed about what it means to have transgender identity. We're going to see, likely, these attitudes change w- along with that. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I do think this this is an interesting point because so many of the laws that have been passed, there was an incident uh, in a state out west, I think it was maybe um, Oklahoma. I, don't quote me on that, where there were local laws passed to prevent trans kids from playing in the with the gender of their choosing, and once they passed it, they realized that it was going to affect one elementary school-aged girl in the state and everybody just from a parental concern perspective realized what are we doing here this is silly let her play on the soccer team it's not hurting anybody and I and I also have some questions about in terms of what interventions could be on the table going forward if this is an issue of concern at least on the competitive level is this a world where we say we have one completely open sports team um, that qualifying cis women trans women and men, trans men, everybody can participate in, and then have a separate league for cis women if the idea is the reason that we've had segregated sports by sex over time is because of the lack of advantage, competitive advantage from a physical perspective that cis women have and trans men then also have. Is it going to be a world where we have strict gender segregation based on uh, sex assigned at birth, or is there going to be an arguably more inclusive division that accommodates the possibility of people who are not cis men being able to compete athletically in a larger group?
2: I think all of those questions are obviously ones the country's grappling with. Mm-hmm. Um, another complicating dynamic is America is a very local country. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these leagues, uh, organizations, rules, um, associations, they're all very local organizations. And really, a lot of the litigation, as you've seen, has been really taking those local decisions and challenging them at the state or at the national level. Um, so it really, the answer is, we don't know. Um, and really, a lot of it is still in flux. Um, so the, the future will have to tell.
0: Mohammed hmm. Yunus, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having
0: me. More Rising, right after this.
1: Follow the story in East Palestine, Ohio, very closely. Now, here's news of another industrial disaster. It's now been over 40 days since the Michigan Department of Health released health data showing the Graphic Packaging International paper mill in Kalamazoo is releasing toxic levels of more than 30 kinds of gas into the surrounding neighborhood 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer has yet to say anything on the subject. Status Quo News reports that residents in Northside Kalamazoo, a predominantly Black neighborhood located near the plant, report extremely high levels of COPD, heart disease, and other issues. Here's their interview with a resident back in April. Like after five o'clock, it get worse. The steam or the smoke comes out, but after five, six o'clock, they really put it on torpedo, and it just fill up the whole sky. It looked like the uh, clouds then came all the way down out the sky it'd be so filled up. I feel like they turn the boilers on and off at certain times when there's not a lot of people that, you know, are working inside the city limits or whatever. Most of the people go home, so they just really don't care about the residents, you know, living over here.
7: And, uh, your daughter, who was so young, did she have like minor eyes- asthma as a younger child and it progressively got worse? with more exposure next to the place?
1: Yes, sir, it did. She had it when she was younger,
8: and it got worse and worse and worse. And she had
1: an asthma attack, and she couldn't be saved this time. Hmm. Joining us now to break down the situation is CEO of Status Quo News and journalist Jordan Cheriton. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right. Can you give us some background and context? How long has this plant been spewing these chemicals into the air? And when did residents first become aware that there were these toxic levels that were uh, attributed, uh, could be attributing, they could attribute their health problems to?
7: Yeah. So graphic packaging has been on the north side, uh, predominantly black neighborhood for uh, decades. Um, And residents always smelled something, but it wasn't always you know obvious where it was coming from uh but then uh, basically within the last decades residents directly near the plant started complaining to city council the mayor the state health department etc uh that the plant it was a horrible smell uh residents because the government wasn't doing anything like went door-to-door surveying you know asthma rates and everybody started realizing wow we all have asthma in this neighborhood um there was Uh, Black infant death, five times the rate of white infant death Mm. uh, in Kalamazoo. Uh, Predominantly, this area is where black people live. Uh, And residents were pleading, not just because it was a horrible smell, but because of the high asthma rates, COPD, heart disease, cancers. Uh, Just being there for two days, my cameraman and I got sick reporting next to that plant. So only Mm. imagine living there 24-7. And they were basically getting stonewalled. Uh, there was a health de- health study that was delayed for three years. I don't know why it took three years. It was suddenly uh, released after we went there and reported on it. Mm. Um, and it showed that they're releasing hazardous levels of hydrogen sulfide. And uh, I believe uh, there's a lot of other contaminants they're releasing that the health study kind of did not uh, thoroughly look at. So Governor Whitmer, for whatever reason, uh, has been silent. Um, her administration actually helped this paper mill, which is a multi-billion dollar packaging company. Uh, they helped the paper mill expand two years ago. So that might have something to do with why they're kind of quiet now.
0: So is there any effort underway on the, on the government's part to fix this issue, even if Whitmer hasn't specifically herself spoken out about it?
7: So I, I wish this like was an onion headline, but basically the health department, after they released the study, their recommendation was stay inside if it smells particularly bad oh, and use a, ne- use a nebulizer. They held a town hall meeting with residents, which was eerily similar to like the early days of Flint, which was kind of checking a box that we're doing something, but we're not really doing something. Uh, they said that they need uh, to do additional studies and research after three years of this study. But basically the top line was, if it's, if, if it smells particularly bad, you know, stay inside. Um, if you have asthma, which most of these people now do, uh, you know, use a nebulizer, and other than that, uh, not much. Uh, I've spoken with residents who are basically talking to health department officials who are kind of telling them unofficially, our hands are tied. the governor needs to do something it's It's, it's really the governor who could declare a public emergency uh, and with that could come resources from the state and or relocation of this plant. I should add the plant is not using carbon filters. And the plant's employees, there's high rates of cancer for former employees of this plant. Mm. Totally totally anecdotal, after I did that report next to the plant, uh, I was going to my car, and a gentleman asked me, what was I doing? So we got to talking, and I realized he works in the plant. He didn't really know what they were releasing, and he said he's only been working there a few months, and his asthma has gotten out of control. And that's somebody in the plant. So it just seems like an open kind of poisoning of a community Now it's actually shifting to the white part of town because in 2021, thanks to the governor's uh, administration helping them expand with a $125 million bond deal, now it is that expansion which released another uh, 500 uh, million tons, it is now going to the west side of Kalamazoo which is more white. So uh, predominantly the black neighborhood is getting it uh, horribly, uh, but now it's shifting to the whites part of town, so you're having parents there starting to complain at school meetings.
1: Jordan, this is incredible reporting. Just so people know, COPD is Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, um, a group of diseases that cause airflow blockage and breathing-related problems. And you said just being in Kalamazoo for the short duration that you were all on the ground doing this important reporting work, you and your camera crew also started experiencing symptoms. Can you tell us about those symptoms?
7: Yeah, so the first day we did a live stream about a half block away. um, My throat instantly was burning. um, And the longer I was live, I started feeling kind of disoriented, like kind of dizzy. My cameraman got a severe headache that lasted a few days. Uh, My eyes were burning. And then uh, when I got home, I mean, really for two weeks, I kind of had like a swollen eye, Mm -hmm. um, which people I spoke with said, I mean, it's a mishmash of chemicals they're releasing. And the health study only really addressed hydrogen sulfide. So who knows what it was from? But yeah, I mean, people who watch the videos, you could tell I was kind of mumbling words a little bit because being so close to that plant, it's disorienting whatever they're releasing. And the residents uh, that live uh, close to the plant, and with the wind, I mean, it's not like it's just within a block or two. This is going all across the city. Um, they, they're hacking up their lungs, particularly uh, like that one resident said, after five, six o'clock at night, it seems like they're emitting a lot more uh, of these toxic gases. So you have residents just hacking throughout the night. Uh, I've spoken with residents between dizziness, nausea, and then there's just the uh, kind of being a prisoner in your own community part. I mean, I've spoken with residents that, you know, they had their daughter's graduation and had guests over and everybody wants to leave because it stinks. They can't open Mm. the windows uh, during the summer. Uh, There's playgrounds in the community that are empty because the parents aren't sending their kids out to play. There's schools that are not sending kids out for recess. I mean, this is happening like in Michigan, not some of the country. The governor, to her credit, reacted to the Benton Harbor uh, water-led crisis in 2021 very swiftly. Benton Harbor was predominantly black. Um, This is also a predominantly black neighborhood, but she's silent. Uh, She's not responding to my outlet, from what I've heard. She hasn't responded to other news outlets. The only thing I could think of is this governor's um, economic board, again, knowing the complaints that were coming, this plant had also been fined several times by the state health department, still approved uh, this company for a $125 million bond deal. The only reason I could think of that she wouldn't want to do anything about this, because then there's obviously questions, well, why would you let this company emit more volatile gases if you already knew of the complaints? So bottom line, I mean, she's a Democratic governor. Obviously, we have the Flint water crisis that happened under a Republican, but she has not exactly ended that crisis. And now this. And it's just across the board in Michigan, there's a lot of environmental calamities, uh, corruption. I could tell you that uh, we have audio of city council members in Kalamazoo uh, three years ago saying they were told kind of, shh, about this because of the economic relationship between the city and this major employer. It it employs 650 uh, residents there. So at the end of the day, I mean, residents are very sick. Uh, In 2015, 1950, so almost 2000 black infants under the age of one died in Kalamazoo County. They predominantly live in this neighborhood. And then afterwards, mysteriously, the data was removed from the website. So I can't tell you what the numbers have been since then. But in 2015, it was almost 2,000 infants under the age of one in this neighborhood. So this is a public health like emergency, similar to East Palestine, that's not being covered that way. And the governor is just kind of running at the clock, hmm. which has national implications, as people know. I mean, Biden was considering her for vice president. Mm-hmm. There's been glowing profile pieces about her, potential rumors of 2028 in a couple of years. So, this is going to come back mm. if she doesn't do something now.
0: Sure. Uh, what you're describing actually has, yeah, a lot of similarities to the Flint uh, water crisis, if, if I recall, was partly caused by switching a water source because they thought a new plant would, in, similar to, similarly to what you just described, um, generate economic activity and, and, and jobs. Um, also, you know, Detroit having horrible um, air quality at, at the same time we were dealing with these... Canadian um, forests sweeping um, the the East Coast in New York DC other places uh, I hit Detroit and Detroit had the like the second worst air quality of anywhere uh, for a couple days so hopefully yeah. people are paying um, attention and something get done gets done Jordan thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me Investor and philanthropist George Soros has handed over control of his $25 billion business empire to his 37-year-old son Alex Soros. That's according to The Wall Street Journal. Alex Soros reportedly told The Wall Street Journal that he is now chairman of his 92-year-old father's Open Society Foundations and plans to support the same causes as his dad which that includes donations to voting and abortion rights and a whole lot of other things, criminal justice, et cetera. Soros said he was going to expand his father's political aims and that, quote, we think alike. But he said, in comparison, I'm more political. Alex Soros recently met with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, as well as Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to, quote, advocate for relation, better relations to the Family Foundation, according to The Wall Street Journal.
1: Soros' son also reportedly said the Democratic Party needs to be better about being more patriotic and inclusive, and that just because someone votes Trump doesn't mean they're lost or racist. According to The Wall Street Journal, people close to George believe that Alex's older half-brother, Jonathan, was set to take over his father's business empire, but then a falling out took place. Well,
0: uh, by the time I'm thirty-seven, I would love to inherit uh, billions <laughs> and billions of uh, my uh, father's also, money. Also, check out that age
1: gap. Uh, Soros Senior was uh, active; he you had know, a little bit of a late in life because he's in his nineties.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that that guy That's is the son, not my a age. Son. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> it is interesting. Yeah.
1: So look, I. Um, it's interesting that, that there was a presumed heir that is not the one that's going to mm-hmm. be taking over. I think substantively it doesn't sound like much is going to change uh, in terms of the big-ticket priorities of the uh, Soros dollars' uh, uh, right. philanthropy. However, it is interesting to hear that the, 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 the now that George Soros—the uh, the heir— is more political, but also in a way that seems to be not in a kind of liberal leading direction. And by liberal, I mean like Demo- capital L, capital D, Democratic Party, where there is this never Trumpism that has taken over, a, over the party. What he sounds like is more of a leftist perspective mm. that says, you know, there is a populist movement to be building towards some of these objectives and alienating working class voters simply because they voted for Trump and stigmatizing them unnecessarily, is not necessarily conducive to that goal. Hmm. I
0: read his, his, is more political as, I could be wrong. My reading was that that means he um, cares more about um, Democrats, electing Democrats, Mm. and might not be uh, as interested in the policy-related causes of his father. Um, So it was more about, he's more political in that he's in the literal game of politics. Mm. Um, So so it, it is likely the Soros money will continue to flow to Democrats, but, you know, maybe other causes that were important to dad are going to get a a backseat. That was my reading of it, but maybe I'm getting this wrong.
1: Yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. It it does feel like specifically it's not a moment to back away from abortion rights, Mm -hmm. given that Republicans really had a dog-catches-car situation with Dobbs, whereas now they're all trying to dig themselves out of it and the um, statements by certain Republicans that they are going to push for a federal uh, abortion ban. Donald Trump, oddly, has that going for him, that he has been more— cautious about leaning into overturning Roe, although he has claimed credit for that happening. He's kind of trying to have it both ways. But it is certainly an issue that is doing very well for Democrats, that is largely um, the cause of their midterm success, or at least fending off the disaster that people anticipated midterms would be. And Soros funding certainly— going to that particular cause, as well as voting rights issues, are really bread and butter for the Democrats right now. He
0: is, uh, given that the Soros' give just so much money, um, he is easily able to get um, sit-downs with important, influential Democrats um, around the clock, anytime he wants. Um, This is reporting from the Free Beacon that um, he was able to meet with Vice President Kamala Harris just last week. Um, There's photos here of him with Nancy Pelosi, Harris, Biden, um, he's met with them repeatedly. Um, actually, Alex Soros appears to have open access to the White House, having visited at least 17 times mm-hmm. during Biden's presidency. That's a lot of times.
1: Yeah, it really speaks to how uh, you're given- problematic having uh, kind of free-flowing corporate dollars in politics is. Of course, that is enabled by Citizens United, largely a uh, court case that was backed by conservative justices and conservatives, mm-hmm. generally speaking, but the consequence is exactly this, an arms race of billionaires to control our government. And we recently were talking about the scandal over Clarence Thomas's palling around with a different billionaire, real estate billionaire, Harlan Crow, and there were a lot of claims about how that wouldn't influence his jurisprudence, how no one should be concerned about it. But I think it is concerning there and it's concerning here. And if you are a principled person and not just someone who kind of politically out of political convenience talks about— Globalist, or George Soros, or whatever, but actually someone who wants there to be a real democracy where our political agenda is chosen by the people and not by whatever billionaire has more money or what might happen to align with your interests in certain cases, then you have to, in a bipartisan, non-political way across the board, you know, be a part of a movement to put limits on how much spending can influence politics.
0: Mm. He also has a beef with Taylor Swift <laughs> for the that? Beacon Report. Alex Soros led a consortium of investors who bought the rights to Swift's unreleased music for $300 million. Um...
1: Was that part of the the dispute that she was having with her former producer? I'm not sure.
0: It looks to me like Scooter Braun and his financial backers, 23 Capital, Alex Soros and the Soros family, have seen the latest balance sheets and realized that paying $300 million for my music wasn't exactly a wise choice and they <laughs> need money, she said in 2020. <laughs> my opinion, just another case of shameless greed in the time of COVID. So tasteless, but very transparent.
1: That feels right. Taylor Swift is really uh, winning these days. Uh, she... Obviously has had a lot of influence as there continued you know, disputes over the Ticketmaster debacle and the a monopoly they have over ticket sales in a way that really hurts artists from being able to profit from their own talents. Um, she uh, had the first glimpse of her kind of political nature came out of I think her uh, documentary, which showed her fighting with her team, including her mm-hmm. dad, about how open she was going to be about her political beliefs. I think because of a I think an LGBT. QIA law that was uh, on the books or coming uh, down the pike in Tennessee that she wanted to speak out against. And there was some question about whether it was going to hurt her career, and she didn't care, but her team did. And it is interesting to see her on the other side of um, someone who is described to be a liberal-leaning ally of the left, who in this case, it seems to have aligned himself against someone who had a... Uh, and relationship uh, has been described as abusive with Taylor Swift in a way that was limiting her agency, both musically and personally. So that, and I think this goes to, again, show this lesson that money obviously separates people—frequently, uh, uh, rather, separates people from their ideology and often speaks much louder than anybody's individual personal beliefs. Per- personal profit— uh, and, and those kinds of agendas mm-hmm. tend to be louder than whatever anybody says in their heart or what's on paper
0: Soros has become uh, such a target of conservative uh, criticisms of democratic priorities and you know because, because he has given tons and tons and tons and tons of money 1.5 he, he billion is in
1: 2021, absolutely alone.
0: out there trying to influence politic, uh, politics and policy um, with this shifting toward the sun it doesn't look like there's going to be much of a Kind of change and it looks like the priorities are very similar in fact maybe you know that change in who was going to be the heir because the other son perhaps i'm reading between the lines maybe didn't exactly have those same priorities so it looks like it's going to be a a huge continuation here in terms of the funding priorities
1: yeah for sure
0: yeah uh all right we will have more rising right after this
1: There have been a lot of questions about how the World Health Organization is funded, especially after COVID-19. Here's comedian Russell Brand highlighting how the organization's former director, Margaret Chan, broke it down. Let's watch.
5: Only 30% of my budget is predictable funds. Other 70% I have to take ahead and go around the world to beg for money.
0: Anyone got a few quid? Anyone got a few dollars? Anyone got an agenda?
5: And when they give us the money, they are highly linked to their preferences, what they like.
0: Okay, here's some money. And I've also got some preferences. So, who's top of the list of donors? Germany. Who's second? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation alone is responsible for 88% of the total amount donated by philanthropic foundations to the WHO. As Margaret Chan said, these people have preferences. I wonder what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's preference is. Probably some sort of influence over it, of course, of any
4: description. And, well, did you notice anything over the last couple of years? Let me know in the chat.
0: Stay free. See it first on Rumble. If you recall, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was at the center of the COVID-19 pandemic response, pouring billions into the research, development, and deployment of a vaccine to combat the virus, much of it with little oversight. Um, I know you're a big Russell Brand fan. I am becoming one as well. Uh, I just wasn't super familiar with him until mm. uh, until we started... Um, Seeing the clips he's posting on his show, I think not a forget Rumble. Sarah Marshall um, fan.
1: No, I've never, I've never <laughs> seen that. Um, I
0: don't. I don't know what I. I had seen him in something, but I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> anyway, uh, I love what he does there, which is is you know uses their own words, shows what Margaret Chan, this WHO official, points out is that they're getting a lot of money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other. Philanthropic organizations that have look—that's philanthropy. Okay, fine. But the Gates Foundation has an agenda, and and Bill Gates has investments in uh, in in vaccine technology. You know, he talks about it. I think we covered previously mm-hmm. him saying that yeah, even vaccines, but that's a needle. What, what about now? We've got to get a squirt thing, mm-hmm. right? Well, is he investing in that? Is mm-hmm. he because he did dump shares in uh, Fire? I mean, he sold them. He made money uh, along the time frame, kind of in keeping with the time frame of, of like the height of the vaccines, mm-hmm. like vaccines good, not not that they stopped being good for severe disease and death, but they didn't fulfill the promise of extensive prevention of cases. So uh, it, and the WHO has come under a lot of criticism throughout the pandemic for all sorts of reasons. Um, it was initially very dismissive of the, it had, it had a kind of, it was accused of having a very a pro-Chinese government kind of placating them not wanting to condemn anything going on there that did get fixed over time uh, where they have put out um, statements critical of the Chinese government's lack of transparency with respect to these things but uh, you know this is a this is a global health organization um, this is not an organization that is um, accountable to US. Democracy to voters, to anything of that nature, and its declarations. And now, in some places, I, I think things the WHO has declared are actually saner than the things that our own CDC declared. Um, they actually did not um, recommend some of the um, policies on kids and mass in schools. They didn't go as far as the CDC at times. Um, so it's interesting. But you know, regardless of what you think, I think you said this in the last segment. Regardless of whether you agree or not, uh, you should you know, be concerned about what, what, how are they making their decisions based on scientific evidence or based on the priorities and preferences of the people who give them money?
1: Yeah, so money talks. When people pay for things, they get listened to. This is the reality of the world since time immemorial. Joe Biden, in one of his more honest moments during the 2020 campaign, was like, look, yeah, if you give a big donation, I'm going to take your call. And that's the very least of it. So following the money, um, as Russell Brand does in this clip, is interesting. Now, you did mention, you know, uh, the World Health Organization was perceived to be pro-China at one point. I just Googled it while you were talking. China has contributed less than 1%, apparently, to the World Health Organization's total funding, which is, which is interesting. Um, uh, the United States... It's actually weirdly odd mm-hmm. oddly hard to find this um, you can find it in raw numbers 550 million right and that's been a 15% increase I'm but sure, struggling but do, do to the, find the, percentage. the philanthropic
0: people who give to the WHO might have business interests in, I mean like Elon Musk is totally tied up with China right it's I think it would I think the concern there wouldn't be a direct pressure from China it would sure. be people who don't want to offend China I mean American businesses down the line are afraid of offending China because they want to be involved in their in their markets.
1: Sure, sure. I'm just trying to point yeah. out that, you know, to the extent that there is this relationship that's being drawn or skepticism of China and its contributions that it seems much lower than the US's contributions. It's also worth noting, you know, the Gates Foundation comprises 88% of the philanthropic donations to the World Health Organization. But that is not 88% overall. That's the percent of what they collect that's not from the countries directly, but just philanthropic. But it's still obviously very significant. And people have raised concerns about what Bill Gates is doing from a scientific perspective. I know there was a news story that was skeptical of his choice uh, to genetically modify over 100,000 mosquitoes and release them into the wild. And maybe it's science and good. And maybe there are real contributions that are coming out of this. But also maybe people are being allowed to do things with insufficient oversight. And as we rebound and try to rebuild from the COVID pandemic and the lives that were lost that will never rebound, will never come back, there is some question about whether or not people who are so wealthy are able to... Act with even less oversight with what we now know happened at government-run facilities like the Wuhan Institute. I think this is a really crucial question about the incompatibility of billionaires in democracy. And again, many of us who believe in a modern monetary theory view of economics don't see the need to tax the rich to earn revenue to spend. The spending power is independent of that revenue power. America can print its own money. There's ways to manage inflation. It's not a necessary consequence of printing money. We don't have to get into all of that right now. But even aside from the revenue issue is the question of whether or not there should be limits on extreme wealth, multiple billions of dollars. I I did a radar probably a year ago now where it visually represented what a thousand, million, billion dollars looked like based on grains of rice. And there were so many comments to that radar that said, oh my gosh, I really had a hard time conceptualizing what a billion really was. And now these people have tens of billions of dollars, and they're able to casually throw a billion dollars in the ring and buy an election the way that Bloomberg tried to do, or comprise a significant, overwhelming majority of the WHO's philanthropic bu- budget. And because they have that much money, they have that much power. And I think people are really going to have to wrestle with whether or not we should have a tax policy that is looking toward what it means to have these anti-democratic influences from individual billionaires.
0: Right. I mean, this comes down to our fundamental disagreement, because I don't care to make them have less money. I want to just—I want to limit their political power. So how do you do that? You limit the extent of what the government— organizations or quasi-government organizations can actually accomplish if they can't do anything to help the bottom line of the billionaires, and the billionaires won't but spend the, so much time trying to lobby them. Who isn't
1: our government? Right. And Bill Gates doing this science stuff on the side. He can, he can build his own lab and do whatever he wants. He can't, It just yeah. means it's unregulated completely if yeah. it's outside of the well, government.
0: Well, can't, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I support having some regulations on creating. Well, you, you won't, you you won't have any if the government's
1: power by, is limited in its ability to regulate them.
0: No, no, no. It, limiting the government's ability to force For instance, products like vaccines on people that will help the bottom line of the billionaires—that I would take away. So what? I would say the government can't force you to buy or get a vaccine, and then that would, or any other medical product, or anything like that.
1: All right. Well, Bill Gates is released 150,000 genetically modified mosquitoes in the wild. He's a billionaire, and he can do whatever he wants. All
0: right. I don't think you can. And that's that's the question that people have to deal with. Genetically. They modified. can be, well, I, I <laughs> and they are. I, well, I'm not, they shouldn't be able to do that. Shouldn't be able to, like, But who build will stop nuclear... them, Robbie?
1: Who will stop
0: them? I, I'm not saying there should be no government. I'm saying there should not be a government that is so powerful that it is serving the interests of Bill. I mean, we're agreeing on that. We're disagreeing on how to get there.
1: So, Some is laissez faire. Economics laisse laissez faire wealth building, deregulation doesn't get rid of billionaires. It empowers billionaires. It's going to make them richer, and there will be no one left to control Regulation them. Regulation doesn't that get is, rid of
0: billionaires either. It just it it, it the people the most powerful and most wealthy. Capture the government institution, and but then make it to so other Robbie, people. But we agree, Bobby, that government capture
1: is an issue. Right. I, I'm wrestling with this. Yeah. There are checks and balances, and, and and efforts to reestablish democracy. That's what we should be working to. But it's quite obvious from these examples that simply saying shrinking government and let the billionaires do what they will is not the solution either. And something people are gonna to have to reckon with whether or not there's any way to control billionaires other than to tax them out of being billionaires, or at least significantly limit their wealth such that they can't casually throw 1.5 billion at their pet project, whether that's electing Soros-backed DAs, mm-hmm. releasing millions, uh, millions of mosquitoes, hundreds of thousands of mosquitoes into the wild or uh, influencing COVID policy.
0: Right, but it's done, the policy is done at the point of government force, which is what I want to limit, where it can be limited. All right. We gotta track down these mosquitoes. I don't know if they're nefarious or not. Gotta find out. Tomorrow on Rising, journalist Lee Fong will join us to discuss exclusive details on how Obama's business deals are actually designed to minimize his tax liabilities. Be sure to like,
1: yeah. Lee Fong is one of the most follow-the-money reporters there are, and he has a lot of good stories as a consequence of that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen on the go, you're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. See you tomorrow.